everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Count Me Too, a platform dedicated to empowering women of color in their passion for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I'm your host, Amreen Rahman, and in this podcast, I will be interviewing some truly remarkable women with extraordinary stories about their STEM journey. everyone and welcome to our fourth episode of my podcast Count Me Too where I interview successful women working to promote and advance women of color in STEM fields. Today I am in conversation with Shweta Rajan who is a diversity and inclusion consultant and leadership coach. Shweta enables companies and individuals to value diverse voices equally and promotes women of color in STEM fields. She has been featured on CBC, La Source, and many other publications for her work. Shweta grew up in India, where she started her career as a scientist in the U.S. She's moved to Canada since and found her home in Vancouver. Her decade of experience in STEM has helped her identify the unique challenges faced by immigrant and international women. Over 20 years, Shweta has successfully transitioned across cultures, countries, and careers, and now she's navigating one of the biggest transitions in her life, being a first-time mom of a newborn. Welcome today uh, to my show, Shweta. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Amreen. And thank you so much for giving me uh, such a wonderful introduction. Absolutely. How are you feeling now that uh, you're a first-time mom in the middle of a pandemic? <laughs> it's an interesting experience. It is um, something that I hadn't, I had no way, no context before. And after being a professional working person for over... 20 years or so, it's, it's really interesting to be able to see how much focus and energy a little child can take. Uh, it is the biggest joy of my life, and uh, getting anything done with him is one of the biggest frustrations that I'm learning how to balance. Absolutely. I mean, it's challenging in, in like normal or good times, right? And now it's kind of, we're all throwing a, a curveball here. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just really grateful for the support that my partner and his family has been able to offer us. Um, And, you know, it's I right now am living in the Comox Valley, gorgeous trees and nature surrounded by and um, yeah, it's just it's it's there's a lot of gratitude that I'm able to experience this. And I miss the fact that my parents were are not able to come here and experience it or my extended family and those things are you know they will not be able to see him or touch well they see him via zoom but you know they can't touch him or uh, be with him for at least a year or so more or at least till we have the vaccines and that is the live reality of immigrants in this country where we are often separated by our families in other countries and in the middle of a pandemic cannot be with them. So, yeah. I do hope that once the vaccine is out and once our way of life turns back to normal, I sincerely hope that uh, you are able to uh, introduce your son to your parents or they're able to come to Canada and see him. Yeah, me too. Keeping our fingers crossed for that, yes. Thank you once again, Shweta, for joining uh, my show. And um, you've been working for many years now as a diversity and inclusion consultant. You've co-founded your own organizations that help uh, specifically women, immigrant women, women of color to advance their careers in these fields. 
I just want to start right from the beginning. What made you interested uh, in the tech space to begin with? Because that is where you started your career. You did work in science, uh, in biotechnology. Were there any influences or experiences growing up in India that shaped your ambitions and future goals? Yes. I grew up in the Indian Army, and my influ- I was strongly influenced by my parents. And what was familiar to me, and what was familiar to me at that time was within the Army, either being women being housewives or being teachers. So growing up, actually, my dream was to get married to an Army officer since women were not allowed into the army at that time and be a teacher. That was the dream. However, around grade, when I had to choose my grade or specialization in grade 11, uh, my dad saw my scores and I had scored like 97 out of 100 in science and somewhere in high 80s. And when I told him I wanted to be a teacher and take English, he was like, have you looked at your grades? Your grades are really strong in science. You should probably pursue, consider pursuing that. And I was like, sure, as long as I get to still read English, I was perfectly fine with that. And so that's kind of was my initial introduction. And then further on, he actually was a really, he himself was into, he was an engineer in the army and he was a big influence in directing me to look at science as an option. But even then, being a scientist was not something that I foresaw in my future until I actually took microbiology and my, as my undergrad specialization. And I just fell in love with microbes. I couldn't believe that there were these tiny little things who had such a big impact on our lives, both positive and negative, and just how they um, were able to live in, you know, in symbiosis with other species and just so simply and elegantly, it was just the most beautiful thing. And I just fell completely in love with the world of microbes and um, then took biotechnology as my master's because I wanted to learn how to, you know, harness the power of these microbes to do something that would benefit humanity. And that's kind of where it all started for me. And so I would say really my biggest role model or my biggest influence in life, uh, which helped me look at science was my dad. And he was a really strong influence in my life. I think parents uh, are such a critical aspect of how a woman lives her life, both mom and dad. But with, especially yes. in cultures like ours and in South Asia, if, if a dad really gives wings to a daughter's dreams and goals and ambitions, I think that is just so much, you know, helpful uh, to, to really pivot us and take us to where we want to be, uh, to have that strong backing, to have that encouragement. So, you know, the more dads yeah. who can get up behind their daughter's dreams and ambitions, then that's how women will succeed, I think. No, that is so true. And though I, though my dad had a really big influence in directing my life towards science, my mom in the early years when I was much younger, she always believed in the power of education. And she didn't really care what 
field I specialized in, but she did feel very strongly about the fact that I should pursue education and I should pursue whichever career track I wanted and however high I wanted to, if I wanted to get a doctorate degree, they would have been perfectly happy to support me. I always had a more applied mind. So I actually wanted to, I knew early on that I wanted to transition into the industry. And so I didn't necessarily see a PhD in my, getting a PhD in my future, but they were, both my parents were very happy to support me in pursuing higher studies, which I didn't realize till later on how unusual it was because it is actually in my generation quite unusual for parents to support their daughters. I have a sister and just one other sibling. Um, So we are two daughters in the family and both of us, uh, she's an engineer, I'm a scientist. um, And both of us were very, very strongly supported and it were never made to feel as though there was any limit to what we could pursue from a career or education point of view, which, you know, uh, given that I'm in my 40s right now, it is pretty unusual at that time. Things have fortunately changed since then for the better, and I'm very glad to hear that. But yeah, it was still uncommon in the times that I was brought up in. So Shweta, you've, you've worked in the field of biotechnology for about 10 years, right? Both in, in research as well as in managerial roles. What um, made you pivot into your current journey of being a DNI consultant? Were there any experiences or certain events in your life that uh, made you change paths or you know, pursue a different direction? Yes, um, it happened really early in my career. I was a graduate student in a university in the US. It was one of my first experiences in a very new country. And um, I got, I faced bullying uh, and discrimination for about three years. And it had a really big impact on my productivity, my self-confidence, my mental health. And as I was let go from that project and I moved on to bigger and better things, one of the key questions that remained with me was how come over the three years that I had undergone this experience, no one in my uh, lab had extended any support, possibly even recognized that I was facing this challenge. Um, And so I left that project with trying to understand what was it that created that space where people could recognize a problem, share their challenge if they were facing anything, um, and look for opportunity to create inclusive spaces for others that I didn't feel that I had when I was undergoing this experience. And so I moved on to, as I moved in my scientific career and took on bigger roles, I was always looking for ways to create an inclusive culture and Very specifically at a company that I work for here in Vancouver, I was able to implement policies, you know, have conversations with the 
leadership team to identify interpersonal differences and resolve them and address um, you know, concerns, employee concerns as they came up. And all of this helped keep the productivity and the engagement in the company really high as we went through several pivots and changes. Um, and so when I moved from there, I was really interested not so much in how to develop good products, which had been a part of my job as associate head of product development in the company, but how do we create that space within organizations where if anyone faces these kind of challenges, you can come in and say to either your friend or your colleague or your supervisor or your manager, or even the founder himself that, hey, I'm facing this challenge and I need you to address this. And that space of psychological safety um, is something that I believe strongly will help organizations to um, drive their productivity up and came from this experience with bullying and harassment that I underwent for three years. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that I go and I speak on panels about my experience with it. And it is something that is still happening. I speak up about it because we need to normalize these conversations and they're still happening in our work environment. It's very critical for employers to understand that innovation cannot thrive in the absence of psychological safety. Your, your creativity, like in any, any employee's creativity or their talents or, or their ideas, if they are facing um, bullying or any sort of harassment in the workplace, they're not going to be able to bring their ideas and innovation on the table because it kind of stunts it because you're so invested in your, like your energy is all driven towards kind of protecting yourself that you're, you're failing to thrive. You're originally supposed to do what you were hired to do, right? So it's very important. I absolutely for agree. So I, I absolutely agree, Amreen. And, and which is why I am such a strong proponent of psychological safety and believe that for any organization to build inclusive culture, one of the first things uh, that they need to focus on is how do you create a psychologically safe space for all their employees, irrespective of what their background might be. Because, you know, as we started this conversation, ideas have no boundaries. And when we are given that we are living in what we now can, you know, has been called the VUCA world, like a world which is extremely volatile, very uncertain, um, complex and ambiguous, the only way we can move forward as a society is to allow all voices to contribute because the challenges that we are facing from climate change to global warming to, um, you know, poverty and civil unrest and challenges are really complex and don't have an easy, straightforward solution. So we need to be able to bring all ideas to the table to see what comes out of it. And the way to do it is to make sure that your organization is not consciously or unconsciously excluding certain voices. 
which have been historically and persistently been denied an equal seat at the table. Thank you for sharing, Shweta, your story about your early career experiences, especially with regards to bullying, is, is very powerful. Um, is there anything you wish you had done differently while you were facing these uh, challenging circumstances? And what would you advise women to do to take back their power when they themselves are facing situations like this? Yeah, and that's a really great question. Um, you know, one of the things that I recognize just looking back, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But when I was in this program, I was either unaware or didn't know of any support network. So I was complete. I felt completely isolated. I didn't know who to go to. And honestly, I didn't even recognize that I was experiencing bullying and harassment because I was coming from a very different culture and I had no context about what I was facing, whether that was normal in this new culture that I was into or it was outside of acceptable behavior. You know, it is easy often, it's often easy to recognize bullying when it is present in the form of loud voices or, uh, you know, demeaning words or, you know, racial slurs. But that's not what I experienced. What I experienced were a series of what we now know to be microaggressions, but there wasn't any language for it at that time, about 20 years ago now. So um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that it wasn't acceptable. It was a normal what I was undergoing. And so I just blamed everything on myself. I took it as that I was being personally, I was personally incompetent and not smart and not very productive. And so what I really wish that I had done differently was that I had reached out and shared what I was going through with someone else, with anyone else, just even a friend outside of the lab and just shared it, or even with my family back in India, because I didn't want to, because I didn't want to be a cause of concern to my parents, who were very far away and couldn't possibly help me. And so, the, but the fact was that as my mental health declined, as my productivity declined, as my self-confidence declined, I started shutting down, and my parents could sense that anyway. So they were concerned Anyway, so I might as well have saved them that by sharing what I was going through. And that's one thing that I would have done differently. What do I recommend women to do to take back power in these situations? Really just know that it's, it's not you. I don't recommend a particular course of action. For some women, it worked to report these matters and to you know, put in official complaints for some women. It just works to move on. And whatever works better for you, whatever you think is better for your mental health, whatever is better for you to take ownership of your life at that time, I would recommend that. Specifically with respect to microaggressions, one of the most powerful ways to make sure that you're facing something and for you to be have any kind of credibility, even if you never choose to report it, I would say document. 
document every single incident that you where you felt you were belittled or made small or was where you felt the behavior was not appropriate or you even felt something that even you felt was normal but you left feeling uh, triggered in some uncertain way that you couldn't recognize i think that is really powerful because even if you never end up reporting it just sharing it with someone and say hey this is what's going on for me and for you to be legitimized in what you're experiencing is very very powerful because often with microaggressions you do not necessarily have um it's not one simple incident and the incidents by themselves might not seem like much but as they add up over and over again as they add on that's when you see that you know it's it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back so it is not one incident it's the accumulation of these incidents that you have to face on a daily basis which drips your confidence away absolutely and like you said it's difficult to prove sometimes yes. people might think that you know what maybe your experience is subjective right maybe it's just your perception maybe it wasn't meant that way but mm-hmm. only the person who's on the receiving end will know yeah and one thing shweta if i might also add my two cents only if they feel safe to do so uh they should also be speaking up about it uh because i believe that consciously sometimes we might train other people in how they should be treating us if you take it lying down or if you're silent first time second time third time it's almost expected that you will be taking it every time so it is i yeah. think important to speak up if again you feel that it is safe for you to do so um under the circumstances that is absolutely correct and if if you if you feel courageous enough to do so um i would recommend that but i also want to say that um you know this is there is a lot of education that needs to happen in this field in this area it it should not be up to the victim to or someone who's being subjugated to this to deal with that uh, situation by themselves you know it is up to everyone including the managers the colleagues everyone to make sure that anyone who works in the organization is supported and one of the things i do recommend people speaking up when they feel comfortable even if it is just to normalize these conversation and highlight how often they are happening uh, because that's one of the things that i often see over and over again i go speak at these panels and every single time i finish speaking there is someone who comes up to me and says i just went through this or i'm going through this right now and we just really need to highlight this and make it's such an it can be such an isolating experience we need to be able to create these safe spaces for people to be able to share these experiences and normalize it so that we can support each other and educate ourselves on what these things may look like and identify them that's where allyship or being accomplices to other people plays in because one of the things i am concerned about is often a lot of um you know it's up to the people who are being discriminated or um you know they are being harassed to 
speak up for themselves, which yes, we should do, but at the same time, we shouldn't be the only one who are responsible for making our lives better um, or dealing with these situations. Very well said, Shweta. Thanks for, for sharing and putting that emphasis. It should be a shared effort. Yes. Definitely. Should, there should be those resources uh, available to address these concerns. So what are the impacts of bullying and workplace harassment on an organization's productivity and bottom line? Why should employers even pay attention to mental health? This speaks back to my early experience because we were having this conversation and you so wonderfully highlighted when you are being bullied and harassed um, or you feel that you're not safe, psychologically safe, you don't, you're not in a psychologically safe environment, you spend so much of your energy in just trying to protect yourself. On top of that, in your body, biologically, your cortisol, your stress hormone is high. It's always up. You're always scanning. It's like expecting an attack to happen at any point in time. So it's like prepared to deal with it. So your cortisol levels are high. And we know that when your cortisol levels are high, it shuts down any kind of creative thinking. So given that we live in a space where creativity is one of our biggest competitive advantages over anything else, then creating the psychologically safe environment should be any organization's first and most important focus because that is what will empower your employees to bring in their best creative selves, their best innovative selves to work. And I'm not talking about, you know, advertising or the big C uh, creativity. We need creativity in like our day-to-day job. Even if you work in a very, um, you know, in a mining corporation or in, uh, you know, first responders or something or very structured organization, you still need creativity. You still need psychological safety to empower employees to speak up when they're noticing something is missing. Right. So that's one of the big reasons why you should employers should pay attention to mental health is because if a person is trying, dedicating so much of your energy to trying to keep yourself protected and safe, they are not being creative. And I can speak from personal experience. I was not, I was shocked that I was let go because it was so unexpected for me. But looking back, I, I know my productivity was an all-time low. And I just wasn't able to produce anything because every time I ran into a meeting with this person, I was in such a defensive mode, in such a mode of trying to just protect myself. And I was like a deer in headlights. There was, there was no creativity. There was no engagement. There was no fun. It was like a big giant slog that I was trying to get through. I was just trying to get through day by day. It wasn't even week by week. I was just looking to how I would be able to get through day by day. And there was no way I was going to produce anything you know, in that kind of environment. And on the flip side of it, when I was producing my best work, I was producing, I was able to uh, deliver on time, meet my deadlines, 
crush my deadlines <laughs> and do some amazing work. It wasn't as company which allowed me, which trusted me to do my work and which allowed me the space to make mistakes um, and, you know, challenge things when I didn't agree with them. Like I felt comfortable enough saying, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's have a chat about it and let's see whether you agree with me or not. And that's a very different idea. That that's a very different space to be in as an employee. And I was the same person my ability to deliver did not change. It was the environment that was different. Um, you know, there's a saying, when a flower is not thriving, uh, you know, you don't blame the flower, you try to figure out what's wrong with the soil. Uh, you know, that's a very apt um, saying which you can apply directly to workplaces you know, if a person, you see, if your employee is not thriving, before you go and start blaming the employee, try to figure out what are some of the barriers in the environment that, the, that, that might be existing that is not allowing this employee to do their best work. Uh, and that is like the core tenant of servant leadership, right? And that's something that I believe in strongly because I've personally experienced the difference where you have a space which allows you to thrive. Shweta, it's very empowering you know, for me to see how you have taken these experiences that you've had and you've tried to do something positive about it. You're, you're helping other women, you're making them more aware so that it doesn't happen to many other women if, if it can be helped. It's really empowering to see that you're, you're channeling that into such positive action. I want to now switch into your your advocacy work. Um, you have co-founded the organization Immigrant and International Women in Science when you came to Canada. What was the key driver behind this initiative? And could you tell me about some of the key objectives um, that IWS uh, is trying to achieve and how you support immigrant women in their STEM journey? Yes, absolutely. So as I progressed in my career as a scientist, I was often approached for mentorship from younger scientists and especially immigrants. And I recognized a gap in Vancouver as I was trying to form a meetup group around supporting immigrants in their journey. Uh, I was approached by another wonderful person who wa was taking on, thinking of doing something very similar. And so instead of starting my own organization, I decided to join this. So we co-founded Immigrant International Women in Science because we recognize how it is for immigrant women. You know, we come here often without social networks or fa familiar support. We don't have a job necessarily lined up. And so we come to this very new environment and there is not resources which can tell you about how do you navigate this completely new landscape that you've landed into? And so that's one of the things that we wanted to address is, is help women who are newcomers, but also people who've been here just share our experiences and support each other through this journey that we are all in. One of the things that we found early on of the core tenants is this recognition that the community wisdom is more powerful than any one 
specific perspective. So one of our core tenets is to value every single perspective. And so often our meetings are held in a round table manner uh, rather than as a speaker or special featured guest kind of subject matter expertise delivering a specific point of view. Uh, we encourage everyone to share their experiences and contribute whatever ideas they have in meeting in meeting some of the challenges that someone else might be experiencing. I'm really proud to say that we have now expanded to over eight uh, chapters across Canada. We have a very active um, member base as well as you know we now have about twenty five plus city and national leaders who all volunteer their time. We are not registered. We are a community impact organization. So all our funding as well as every single thing that we have done so far has come from the efforts of our volunteers and fundraising from grassroots initiatives. I'm really proud to say that we've created this safe space for people to share their experiences and support each other through the journey of being an immigrant woman in science and STEM fields in Canada. That's such an excellent initiative, Shweta. It's only the benefit of Canada's economy to be able to tap into these women's talents and resources. We don't want qualified women to come here and then settle for survival jobs and then keep at it, right? They want to use their talents and their education and expertise. That's absolutely true. Thank you for reminding me. That's one of the key objectives is to, you know, help immigrant women thrive as contributing members to the Canadian economy because the fact that only, you know, Vancity released this report a couple of years ago now, only 50% of immigrants in BC get a job in their field of expertise. And the rates are very similar in Ontario. And just a couple, last week, I believe, there was this report which came out, which study this came out that not by Vansity, I believe it was Northwestern University which did the study, which says that Canada is actually one of the, between the OECD countries, is one of the keys, uh, one of the worst offenders in having in discriminating against uh, people of color in, hi- in their hiring practices. You know, given that, um, often it's portrayed, the media portrays these as a loss, uh, as a personal loss to the immigrant, not realizing or not really highlighting that it also costs the taxpayers and Canada to the tune of 11 to $16 billion in letting this very specialized talent go to waste. So, you know, we hear stories about uh, Uber drivers in Toronto being doctors. And there was this amazing um, story that I just learned about, about a person from an African background who um, is, I believe now at Shopify, and he would send out his resumes with anglicized name versus his name that he was born with and he got more callbacks he actually documented his experience saying how he got better callback with an anglicized name and so and you know his expertise his his ability to perform at the job nothing changes it's just the very big obstacle of not having an anglicized name that is 
perceived as being less capable. And so these are some of the key issues that we as in Canada really need to address and take ownership of. We are unfortunately very quick to look at the state and sit on our high horses, not really comfortable dealing with what's happening in our own backyard. That is an excellent segue into my next question about your work in diversity and inclusion. We are all aware of the events of this summer and how that's really galvanized support globally for diversity and inclusion, especially for people of color, also in corporate spaces, right, in workplaces. How does your business, Inclusion Advantage Consulting, work with organizations to achieve their DNI objectives and, and make it more equitable? And why should organizations even care about making their uh, spaces more inclusive and equitable? A very wonderful question. I was, as a person of color who's navigated the space about two decades now, there are a lot of things that I have seen, I've personally experienced and I have seen happen to other um, people which can often be quite disheartening. But over the past few years, and especially since the recent George Floyd-inspired Black Lives Matter movement, um, I have seen a really big shift in people, in wanting to see change and being open to dialogue and action which is really, really heartening to someone like me. I believe in a Canada which is very accepting of its people. One of the reasons why I call Vancouver home, and I believe that I found my home in Vancouver, is I remember so crystal clearly that when I landed in Canada, I was driving in from U.S. at that time because I was living there, and I was making my move to Canada. And as I crossed the border, the border security agent looked at me and said, welcome home. And the feeling that I got of being accepted and recognized was something that I feel a strong pull towards and is one of the core tenets that I believe in. I believe in a Canada which welcomes people, is a space where everyone is valued and all cultures exist with each other. And so it is very heart- it's very heartening for me to see people wanting to step into this work, even though they are well aware that it is going to involve some discomfort. That is what I facilitate. I facilitate creating those safe spaces where people can have these possibly charged conversations. I facilitate how to create inclusive spaces as individuals and how to recognize uh, structural and systemic barriers that exist because of um, who these structures were built for and recognize those power dynamics and to dismantle them so that they work for the majority of the population. You know, these structures were not built for the majority of the population. They were built for a very specific, with a very specific population in mind. That's who the structures were built for. And so in order for Canada to thrive, they need to address and make 
create the space for the remainder of the population that exists here. That's one of the things that I'm working on in creating these safe spaces for people uh, to create inclusive environments and practices that you can take on as individuals to recognize and dismantle systemic barriers that might exist within your organizations. Change has never come from a place of comfort. It, um, it always comes from you know something drastic that we never expect. But I do agree with you. It's, it's very heartening to see how everybody has lent their support to this cause. And Canada was already great. Like yourself, I also have always felt very welcomed. And yes. it is a very good thing now that even corporations and organizations are trying to be even better about this specific uh, specific social issue. You know, one of the things to recognize, and for me, I recognize this, is that equity, diversity, and inclusion is an ideal that many of us are not going to reach within this lifetime. But just because an ultimate goal is unreachable in your lifetime, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take any action towards it. If all of us never took an action because we didn't personally benefit from it, we wouldn't be here as a society. You know, there would be no trees planted for our kids. There wouldn't be any, you know, big systems and structures and roads built. Um, We wouldn't take it on as a society. But, you know, as a new mom, I just want to leave a better future for my son who is going to be biracial um, and build a, you know, world for him where his skin color or his cultural background does not limit his capacity to contribute to society. Um, And that's kind of what I'm working towards. That's my personal motivation to step into this field. I really liked one sentence that you have told me uh, during our initial conversation. You said, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And Mm -hmm. uh, your actions are definitely mirroring uh, what you said. Thank you for your work, Shweta, in this diversity and inclusion space as well as being a champion for women of color and immigrant women. Um, And I do appreciate the time that you have given us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amreen, for having me with you.